We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to a Thursday afternoon edition of the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Thursday, August 26th. Uh, Alex, I, I think we've officially reached the dog days of the NBA season. Summer League finished up last week. Um, you know, the schedule has still kind of been messed up for the last year, year and a half um, with all the, the COVID machinations and whatnot. So things are a little bit later uh, than they normally would be. But, you know, this month and pretty much the month of September, I think training camps can start around September 27th. Um, but these next like four to five weeks are, are really the only true off season that we're going to get. And, and news has slowed to a complete crawl. Um, you know, kind of nice to, to have that break in some ways. But at the same time, you know, we're fully prepping for 2021-2022. Uh, if you've been on the site at all lately, uh, we launched our full projections last week. Those, are, as always, are fully customizable uh, to whatever your league settings are. Uh, we pushed our first like 200 plus player outlooks earlier this week as well. Alex, you had the lead on that. Um, so we're going to dive in a little bit to, to those projections, the rankings, how certain players came out, you know, which guys maybe might be a little too high, a little too low. Um, some of the guys that you and I have kind of been privately going back and forth on as we formulated these projections. Uh, but first, I want to dive into some of the yes or no to make the playoffs odds on the DraftKings Sportsbook. Um, but, but just off air, we were just talking Excuse me, as I completely lose my voice, I've been, I'm, I'm really hyped up today. We, we have uh, beach volleyball playoffs tonight. Uh, so I've just kind of, I, I woke up jazzed up. I drank way too much coffee. It's all I've been thinking about all day. Um, if we win the first game, we're playing for the title. First year in the league, a lot on the line. Um, so that, that probably won't be the first time this happens. Anyway, I promise I'll let you talk in a second. Uh, you brought up a great point. How many teams do we expect to be tanking next season, or maybe another way to phrase it, be okay with, you know, angling for a top three to five pick. You know, you brought up like four or five initially. I, I think five is probably the cap, right? Like what, which, which of those five teams do you see as, as almost for sure bottom feeders next year? 
So I think the only arguments for teams uh, that would even potentially fit the criteria are San Antonio, OKC, Houston, Cleveland, Orlando, and Detroit. But then you can kind of start to narrow them down. Um, you can start with Cleveland, in my opinion, because I, I think their tank is effectively done. They have a starting five that they've almost entirely drafted, aside from Jared Allen. Um, and so I think I think they're going to try to be competitive. Um, Orlando and Detroit, I think, are two teams that are very okay with, with still being bad. San Antonio is borderline. I think their roster is very like their their roster is horrible. Um, but organizationally, they have not been a team to tank in the past. However, we've never seen them in this sort of a position, however you want to phrase it. OKC clearly still in a huge tank. Um, Houston's also kind of borderline. I think along with San Antonio, although I I think I'd say Houston has a much better roster than the Spurs do. Um, but if if the Rockets stay healthy. They should be a good team, um, and they already—they've already, you know—they have some good young pieces already with Christian Wood, uh, Jalen Green, and Kevin Porter. So they're not—and uh, Sangoon as well. So they don't necessarily have to like try even harder to to tank. They already have some pieces. Yeah, I mean, for as far as teams that finish with the worst record in the league go, and and obviously Jalen Green, you know, the addition of of him as kind of a keystone asset certainly helps, but. The cupboard's not all that bare for Houston. And, you know, I, I think I, it sounds weird to say they underachieved last year, but like Christian Wood missed a ton of time. John Wall, you know, basically missed half the year. Uh, you know, the Old Depot experiment did not work out at all. Uh, and I think they were totally okay with that outcome, you know, getting Jalen Green. Um, and, you know, the way that the, the chips fell, like they, they would have had a chance at another lottery pick as well. So everything kind of turned out okay, I, I think, for Houston. But yeah, like you said, I mean, I think if you flipped the Rockets roster and the Spurs roster, like if the Spurs had the Rockets players and the Rockets had the Spurs players, you'd feel way worse about the Rockets and way better about the Spurs. Yeah, 100 um, percent. And some of like some of the uh, worry about the Rockets roster just comes from the fact that John Wall is the, the starting point guard and just the injury concerns that come with that. But again, like you mentioned, if if he stays healthy, like they have a they have a legitimate starting five. Uh, the Rockets do in terms of Wall, Porter, Green, uh, I guess Tice, maybe uh, Christian Wood. And their depth isn't even terrible. Like they have Eric Gordon still, uh, Jay Sean Tate, Daniel House. So, oh, yeah, you figure if if <laughs> if Popovich was the coach of that team, they would def- definitely be trying to make the playoffs. Right. And if. Uh, you know, if if the Rockets, like I said, if they had the Spurs roster, you'd be like, this team is going to win 11 yeah. <laughs> games. But because it's because it's the Spurs, and even though I think on paper, San Antonio has maybe the worst or second worst roster, and I don't feel any better about it after free agency uh, than I did before. Uh, but because it's the Spurs, like you still have to have that shred of doubt where it's like, you know, they're not going to win 16 games. Like they're, they're going to find a way to at least be respectable. At the end of the day, though, with San Antonio, I, I, I'm very curious as to how willing they and, and Greg Popovich will be to potentially at some point, like concede that this is going to be a rebuilding year. And then at that point, you know, you want to shift into the mode where you're trying to improve your draft pick as much as possible, because, you know, the Spurs missed the playoffs last season, but they ultimately ended up in 10th place in the Western conference, which is really not where you want to be. That's where, that's what lands you Josh Primo in the first round of the draft. You know, like you're, you're not high enough to, to really get a star. You're not, you're not low enough where you really feel like you're all that close to competing the next year. Um, and, and San Antonio traditionally has been, you know, really resistant dating really all the way back to when they got Tim Duncan, um, really resistant to totally bottom out. And I, I think this season is maybe the closest 
at least in our memories, that we're going to see to something like that. I agree. Yeah. And just like to put into perspective where the betting odds are on this in terms of to make the playoffs, this is from the DraftKings Sportsbook. The Spurs are minus 3,000 to not make the playoffs. That's pretty much the exact uh, same odds that the Suns have to make the playoffs. Um, And yeah, I mean, this is this is a roster where I, I don't even know how I don't even know what the path to this team being competitive is other than like every single young player taking um like a massive leap. Like DeJounte Murray, I think has to be the best player on this team. Um, Derek White's maybe the second, like very quickly you start thinking about like, who's the third best player on the Spurs and you're, you're stuck somewhere between like Keldon Johnson and Doug McDermott and I guess Pirtles in there. They have zero depth. If anyone on this team gets hurt, it's pretty much a disaster already. So I don't know how they're going to handle it organizationally, but um, I I would just be shocked if they're good at all. Like, I, I think they could easily be the worst team in the league, even if they are trying to win every single game. Like, their roster is just complete bare bones. Right, and I think, you know, the strength of the teams at the top of the West, too, are, are, are going to affect this by default. You know, even if they decide, like, we're going to try to win as many games with this roster as we can, I mean, I, the way I see it, there are, in the Western Conference, there are six teams to me that are playoff locks. Utah, Phoenix, Denver, Dallas, the Lakers, and the Warriors. The Clippers and the Blazers are the other two that are usually in that discussion. I I, I think both those teams probably make it. I mean, the Clippers are in limbo for obvious reasons with Kawhi, uh, but they still probably have enough talent around Paul George, you know, especially based on what we saw from them after Kawhi went down, um, that you'd think they would at least make the playoffs or make the play-in. And and Portland, assuming Dame Lillard stays, I think I think they're they're easily in. But you kind of have to go, uh, you have to shade them a little bit just because of the possibility uh, that Lillard or or you know McCollum or whoever it is, there's some sort of shakeup there. But you know if those teams stand pat and if Kawhi comes back, you know earlier than we expected and plays the last 30 games of the year, then the Clippers are in, and the door is pretty much shut on a team like San Antonio. Um, you know, like. The Spurs would even have a, a tough time, I think, competing with the Grizzlies and the Pelicans and the Kings and the Timberwolves, you know, teams that uh, ostensibly have significantly more talent, maybe worse coaching, maybe worse organizational structure. But, you know, it's it's just going to be a really tough ask, I think, for San Antonio. And that, that again, goes back to the question of, you know, at, w- at what point is it just smarter to say, like, let's, let's sit this year out. We, you know, we'll, we'll try to grab a top three pick. And, you know, they, they actually, for as much as I hated their free agency moves, like a team that's trying to tank does not go get Doug McDermott for $40 million. I'll, I'll say right. that. But, you know, some of the names you mentioned, like it's not like they don't have guys who couldn't take a step forward. Like Devin Vassell, Keldon Johnson. I mean, maybe Josh Primo is better than we expect. Obviously, Murray could take a leap. Derek White has never really been able to stay healthy. Um, like it's, it's not a roster that you love. It's not a roster that's filled with you know, potential superstars necessarily. But it's also not a team of like 33-year-olds whose potential is tapped. Like there, there is a, a fair amount of young talent who, based on how the Spurs have been able to develop guys in the past, like it wouldn't be shocking if two or three of those guys, you know, took significant leaps. Yeah, I mean, there are some. I, I'm not like a huge fan of their core outside of Dejounte Murray, honestly. I, but you're right. I mean, they all these guys have potential. Um, you know, I mean, I just don't know, man. Like we're saying, like there might only be one other team in the West actively tanking. Um, and that's, I mean, that's just going to be really tough when like almost every other team is really trying to win games. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, this is that you are in a perfect opportunity where you can tank 
because if only three teams in the entire league are theoretically like actively trying to be bad, then your chance of getting a top three picks obviously really high. Um, the, yeah, the McDermott move is, is really strange to me. I thought that was terrible. Although I kind of am looking forward to seeing like if he can, if he's going to just take like 16 shots a game um, and average 20 points and just be like an, a legitimate part of the offense. But I also think there is value in teams that are very bad signing guys um, for deals that probably just on the surface don't make sense, but with the intention of flipping them later for like a late first or a mid round first or something like that. Like, I think that has value. That's what I thought the Pistons were doing last season with Mason Plumley. It didn't work out because they had to, I think, give up picks to get off of him. Um, but um, I, I still think for the Spurs, I'm a little less. Um, I hate it a little less than I did before, but I still think organizationally, like you'd still just want Vassell or Lonnie Walker to get those minutes. Forgot about Lonnie Walker. Completely forgot he existed. We didn't even cross my mind to mention him. Um, but that that's probably a sign that we've had enough Spurs talk to begin this <laughs> podcast. If anybody is still listening, um, you, the, one of the to make the playoffs numbers that jumped out to me most was Toronto. Uh, they're heavily shaded toward no, not making the playoffs at minus 360. Yes, plus 280. I, I think this was a team that probably if we could rewind, I, I don't remember exactly what we said about them going into last year, but I'm pretty sure I would have put them in the lock to make the playoffs category. And and obviously a, a lot of things went wrong from a health perspective. Um, they, I, I still think they probably could have made the playoffs or stuck in at least to the play-in if they really wanted to. Um, it, it felt like they made an organizational decision toward the end of the year to kind of back their way out of that. Um, and, and obviously it, it, it paid off by them moving up and getting the fourth pick in the NBA draft. But I, I think of all the teams that did not make the playoffs last year, maybe with the exception of Golden State, I think they're the team that, to me, could bounce back in fairly easily. With that said, the one through seven seeds in the East last year, you know, barring injury, I don't really see any of those teams going anywhere. Um, you know, I think the Knicks could maybe be a little bit worse. That's a team that it felt like had like no issues at all. Well, the rest of the league was ravaged. You know, their best player, I think, missed only like one or two games, if any, in the regular season, Julius Randle. Um, but, you know, Sixers, Nets, Bucks, Knicks, Hawks, Heat, Celtics, you know, do, do any of those teams take a, a, a big enough step back that you feel like a team like Toronto or Indiana or Charlotte or Chicago moves up? Um, because I, I think Toronto, Chicago, Charlotte, possibly even Indiana, like all of those teams, I think would expect to, at the very least, compete for a playoff spot. And Washington spot at number eight is probably the least secure. But at the same time, I mean, we're talking about four teams that really feel like they should be there for maybe one or two spots. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, I mean, Philly always has a chance of starting off a little shaky with the Ben Simmons thing. Um, Washington, yeah, they're kind of a question mark. But again, like uh, Chicago got better. Indiana, I think, gets better just by uh, just in terms of their players probably being healthier and having one of the best coaches in the league now in Rick Carlisle. Um, we just kind of talked about how Cleveland is in a position to try to win games. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be really tough for Toronto to jump in there. And you're right. They did have some bad injury luck um, last season. Like they, you know, they had, I think, 18. Yeah, they had 18 players start a game for them last season. Um, Lowry and Anganobi both played about 45 games. Um, and like, I don't I don't dislike their roster currently, but it doesn't have like there's nothing that really stands out to you about it. Like Van Vliet and Siakam are very good players. Anganobi, I think, is going to continue to make good progress. 
Gary Trent's going to fire up threes. Barnes is interesting. But they're not, you don't look at this team and, and feel like they're necessarily built to win or that when you, you know, like if you uh, just had them, you know, like play, you know, like if if Toronto was going up against Indiana, you got Indiana favored by what, like five, six points, something like that? I, I don't know. I mean, Indiana was four games under 500 last year, and that was a team that was trying to win a lot of games. Obviously, they had some injury issues as well, and that was a big part of it. Uh, they get Karis LeVert back for hopefully a full year. Um, I mean, Indiana's the better team. I mean, if you look at their odds on the DraftKings Sportsbook, they are minus 175 in favor of yes, plus 145 in favor of no. That's about as tight as it gets um, as far as it being like a true 50-50. Uh, very similar odds to the Bulls, who are minus 165 yes, plus 130 no. So if if you kind of go by the book there, those are the two teams that I think are kind of straddling the line between, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, kind of in that range. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I would trust Indiana more uh, because of the coaching. And I, I do, you know, I've, I've kind of been a fan of their roster for the past few years. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, I would not bet on Toronto to make the playoffs, even, even at the money that you're getting like plus 280. to me, that's just not, that doesn't feel like enough value. Um, I, I would, I would much rather be holding the no ticket for minus 360. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, in the Eastern Conference, what what are the teams that again that you you, you said are in the tanking t- territory? Orlando or Detroit? Were they the only for sure?s Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think Orlando is absolutely in that category, especially with some of the injuries that they have to guys like Fultz and Isaac. Um, Detroit, I, I feel like would be okay being the eight seed. If, if somehow that were possible, I mean, we're, we're talking about how loaded that top seven is and, and even how difficult it's going to be to grab the eight. So I, I don't think that's realistic for them, but like, this isn't exactly a roster. It's, it's kind of like the Cavs, right? Where you, you have your keystone asset in place in, in Cunningham and, you know, you've surrounded him with some, some younger talent, but you still have Jeremy Grant, you know, you go and sign Kelly Olenek, which is kind of the redux of the Mason Plumley signing. Like they're not exactly positioning themselves to lose as many games as they can on purpose. Like they're still going to lose a ton of games, but I, I feel like if, if everything broke right and they could have a chance to get the eight seed, like organizationally, they would be okay with that. Even if ultimately it's pretty unrealistic. I think they'd be okay with it. I think, or, or if they landed in the play in, um, you know, at like the 10 seed or something, I think they'd be okay with it. I just, um, you know, as much as I like Kelly Olenek, uh, um, Jeremy Grant showed some stuff last year. It's, I mean, that, that, scenario will come down a lot to like Killian Hayes making a huge leap because he was bad last year. Um, and Isaiah Stewart, you know, having a great season, which I, I, I think is possible. Um, but their depth is also very bad. You know, they're kind of one of those teams that's like, you know, if everyone stays healthy, if everyone plays 75 games, they're in a pretty good spot to be relatively competitive, especially if those guys take a step forward. But if any of their starters miss, you know, 20 games, something like that, they're in some deep trouble. Like, It'd be a lot of Josh Jackson minutes. It'd be a lot of Dumbuya minutes and like just guys you don't trust on a a game to game basis. If there's one thing we appreciate here at Rotowire, it's making good decisions and even more so making the right decision. I have an incredible offer for you with Rotowire's newest partner, WinBet, the premier digital casino and sportsbook app. WinBet is now the exclusive sponsor for Rotowire's fantasy podcast. WinBet brings you all the latest action with a user-friendly interface, money line bets, 
boosted parlays, over-unders, round robins, live betting, and so much more are at your fingertips. Want a break from sports betting? Head into WinBet's digital casino and take a spin on roulette, double down in blackjack, slam the slots, or try your hand at Baccarat. WinBet is currently available in six U.S. states, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia, while rapidly expanding nationwide. At WinBet, the possibilities are limitless. WinBet is currently offering all RotoWire listeners a risk-free bet up to $500 on your first wager. All you have to do is download the WinBet app right now. That's WinBet, W-Y-N-N-B-E-T. WinBet, the exclusive partner for RotoWire's fantasy podcast. So before we get to the projections and rankings, I just saw a headline. Uh, Chris Paul says he's, quote, addicted to playing in the NBA Finals. So thoughts <laughs> and prayers. Hopefully he gets the help that he needs. I don't even know. I, I don't even really know how to respond to that. I don't know that he's going to have another great opportunity to get there this year. Um, they'll, they'll be in the running. But for his sake, you know, hopefully he's not you know, going through too many withdrawals. But pretty wild quote. Love to see that. Um, let's get to the projections. So we're going to be referencing eight category roto leagues um kind of kind of our default i guess at least for you and i but obviously you can tweak these to head to head head to head points regular points um you can tweak whatever roster settings you want you can add offensive rebounds you can add triple doubles as a category uh but we'll be sticking to eight categories when they when the projections came out you know we've made some tweaks in the week since um nothing too dramatic i feel like in years past there's definitely been um there's there's been more like okay this is this guy's way too high or this guy's way too low um, I, I do feel like we, we did a pretty solid job getting these guys where they should be, uh, at least passing the eye test. But unsurprisingly, Nikola Jokic comes out on top. James Harden is our second-ranked player. Stephen Curry, third. Damian Lillard, fourth. Giannis Antetokounmpo, fifth. Uh, and keep in mind that games played is a major factor here. So you know, someone like Kevin Durant is only projected for, I, I think, a relatively conservative number of missed games. We have him at 69 games played. We have Embiid at 68. Anthony Davis at 68. Um, so if those guys were at 80 games, like Nikola Jokic, uh, they would be bumped up a little higher. But we do try to you know, match those to how many games we think they're going to play and, and how many games they've missed in recent years. Um, anything from that top five jump out? It, it, is, is there a player you think maybe doesn't belong in there or, or someone you think should be jumping in? No, I think I think that's a top five that all makes sense. I would say I think, you know, I, you handle the, the majority of these projections, pretty much all of them, actually. Um, and I know you were pretty conservative with Harden's points per game at 23, which I think is right, by the way. Like, if you look at the numbers when the big three are all on the court together from last season, Harden's usage was like way down. He was being pretty conservative. And even still having him projected for 23 points a game, uh, he's projected to end up as the number two fantasy player, which is just, it just continues to show you like how perfect his stats are for fantasy. Um, and like, I don't think you should draft him number one. I think that's crazy given what Jokic, the, the season Jokic is um, kind of in line to have, but you can still certainly draft Harden number two. Like, I don't think we're, we're past that. I think there are, I think Harden, Curry, and Lillard are all valid number two selections. I don't think I'd pick anybody else number two. Um, does that sound right to you? Are those the only guys in contention for you? Like, if you have the number two pick? Assuming Real, Jokic goes number one. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, you, if you're if you really high on Kevin Durant staying healthy, there's True. a case to be made there. But I, I think he was just, you, you know, like the, the, the one positive, I guess, with Durant last year, I mean, he missed like, I think over just over half of the regular season. 
the, the one positive is that nothing had to do with the Achilles, right? And you could say, you know, maybe the hamstring is connected to that, overcompensating as he's recovering, right. who knows? But it's not like he had, like, discomfort in his Achilles. Like, that would really scare me. So I, th- I think there's a pretty good chance that he, he, like, dramatically increases his game's played total. But you also have to keep in mind, this is a team that I, I think, you know, like, there's no way that Harden and Kyrie are going to miss as much time, I think, collectively, or the, the big three collectively, as it did last year. Like, this is a team that should, in all likelihood, lock in, like, a top two seed within the first month of the year. Like, there's really going to be no reason to push Kevin Durant to play 82 games. Um, you know, I, I think if he, if he plays anywhere over 70, you're thrilled with that. Um, if he's under, like, 67, 68, um, you know, then, then maybe you get a little bit concerned, depending on how high you took him. But I, I'm very optimistic when it comes to Durant. But, no, I, I don't think you can justify taking him at number two. I, I think... Once Harden, Curry, Lillard are off the board, you know, if you want to take Durant at like five, that's a little more justifiable. Um, but you know, you have to keep in mind he's he's creeping towards his mid thirties, and you know, I, I I almost think the bigger factor is just the the fact that Brooklyn doesn't need him in the same way that a team like Denver needs Nikola Jokic to play, you know, maybe 80, 81 games. And for for as much like crap as as Jokic gets about his body and not being in shape, he has been low key the most durable out of all these guys. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It's bizarre how that can that can be the case. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Lifting bad? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think I think you're right about all of that. You know, if you are in like when we do the young of PKC drafts, you uh, I forget what you call it, but you pick the spot in the draft you'd most prefer to pick at. Um, and derby. Yeah, 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 yeah. Derby. And I think if you are I think if for this season's draft, the way I'm seeing it right now, you'd probably want the number four pick ideally so that you kind of get the hard and Curry Lillard decision made for you um, on which one of those guys you end up with. Because I, I do think after pick four, it's very wide open um, in terms of, hey, maybe you take Giannis, hope his free throws improve. Uh, Towns is always in there. Uh, one of the more under, underrated guys definitely justified picking him fifth. Jason Tatum maybe has a huge year. Doncic, the MVP favorite. Again, like you mentioned, Durant. And maybe you think Embiid's going to stay healthy. Um, like all those guys are valid number five picks. So um, I think I think that's kind of the way you would approach drafts this season if you're in that in that derby style. You brought up Towns. He he comes in at number six in our overall rankings. I, I think I think that's right. I, I will say, I mean, three games for Towns, it might be a little bit aggressive which for a guy who played 82, 82, 82, 77 through his first four years, um, it's kind of weird that we're saying that, but he played 35 two years ago and then played 50 out of 72 last year. So, I, I mean, he has four years of being an Ironman, two years of being banged up. I, right. you know, obviously those, those two years are a little bit more fresh in the mind. Uh, I, I, I hope he bounces back. I mean, it would be, it would be great to have him back as a 75 plus guy. Um, but how worried are you with, with Carl Towns? I feel like you've always been a slightly higher on Towns than I have. So, like, do you are you are you willing to kind of throw out the last two years as you know part of it being COVID related? You know, part of it just being the Timberwolves being incompetent. Like, are are you confident that he bounces back and you know plays more games and and starts looking like the guy that we saw through his first four years? Yeah, I'm definitely among the Towns optimists uh, for sure. Um, I I do think. I, I am comfortable with him uh, assuming he'll play at least 73 games, be- partially because a lot of last season's absences, I mean, at least two weeks worth of his missed games were COVID uh, related. So 
And like, sure, maybe like that plays a factor this season. Like, you never know how people recover from that. Like, that's not really being talked about still. Um, You know, like it just I don't know how people uh, aware people are of it or how reported it was to like the general public. But Jason Tatum having to use like an an inhaler for a while after he caught it. Um, But in general, I think I'm pretty confident in uh, on Towns. I would definitely take him five. Um, (laughs) I don't think I'd take him any earlier than that, but. He's he's one of those guys whose stats are just like absolutely perfect for fantasy. You know, like even though he's not historically a good defender, he still gets enough steals and blocks to like not be a complete minus in that category. He's hyper efficient. He's he's passing the ball a little bit now. You know, I do think the emergence of like Anthony Edwards is kind of interesting for them just in terms of, you know, he can be a 20 point per game guy, if not more um, that sort of a thing. But their offense is still so barren. Like if you go beyond D'Angelo Russell Anthony Edwards, um, I guess Malik Beasley will be back. That could take away some usage from Towns, but he still needs to be the complete focal point of their offense. Like I'm not worried about him averaging like an efficient 2010 and four. Yeah, I don't, I don't worry about those guys affecting Towns, but I do worry about them all affecting each other. Like Russell specifically, you know, he yeah. he was coming off the bench at the end of last year, <laughs> and I, I just I don't really see Anthony Edwards backing down. Like the type of personality no. and the type of player that he is like, I, I would almost expect him to be their second leading scorer. And then, like you said, I mean, Malik Beasley, you know, a little bit more of like a three point shooter first, but still a high usage, aggressive score. Like you're not going to have four guys all averaging 20 plus points. And, you know, Beasley has gotten close in years past. Edwards is certainly on that trajectory. Russell's been a 20 plus point per game score in the past. Um, I, I, I'm a little bit concerned about, you know, how, how those three guys all come together. And it, it's tough to project them because, they all, you know, Russell and, and Beasley specifically, all kind of missed time at, at different times. So, you know, we got to see Russell play without Beasley. We got to see Beasley play without Russell. Uh, Towns obviously missed 20 plus games. So it's, it's one of those situations kind of similar to Brooklyn in some ways where we never really got a, a great sample of all four of these core guys being healthy together and what that scoring distribution looks like. Right. They're kind of interesting to me as like they feel a little Bulls West just in terms of like, hey, there are four guys on this team that have historically been able to average like close to 20 points a game or like roughly 20 points a game. Um, like, are they going to mesh together? Will they be a top, you know, eight offense, but like one of the worst defenses in the league kind of a thing? Um, their team is really fascinating. <laughs> it is kind of interesting that they ended up basically giving away Ricky Rubio when I think at this point with Beasley, Edwards, and Towns there, um, you would much rather have like a distributing kind of pure point guard rather than someone like D'Angelo Russell. Um, but yeah, their, their roster is very interesting to me, but I'm, again, I'm really high on towns. He's probably the most underrated, like quote unquote elite fantasy um, option out there. And he's, you know, his numbers translate in category leagues, points leagues. Um, so he'd, he'd, he'd definitely be a solid number five pick. I think he's someone you might be able to get at a relative discount too, yeah. where people are just down on him. You know, he was a guy who was going number one a couple of years ago in fantasy drafts. And I think for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about durability being the, the chief concern, like I, I think a lot of people just don't want to deal with that. And if this is the year that he does return to playing 75 plus games, there's a really good chance that if, you know, if you're able to get him at like eight or nine, um, that's an incredible foundation to then go grab maybe, I don't know, Anthony Davis or Brad Beal or LeBron or Zion with that second pick and have a really, really nice foundation. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. 
Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, Luka Doncic comes in at number eight. And you know he'll he'll switch around a little bit depending on what format you use and, and what categories um, you know your, your league employs. But I, I think that's probably a little bit lower than maybe the casual fan would think based on just the pure counting stats. You know I think I think he at some point is the only other player outside of Russell Westbrook um, and maybe peak LeBron. Like LeBron's not doing it at this point. Who could legitimately average a triple double and and maybe do it more than once. And he's been close these last couple of years, you know, two years ago specifically, it looked like he might be on track to do that last year. Um, got off to that slow start, especially shooting the ball. But as was the case at the end of the 1920 season, like really, really turned it on at the end of the year and, and played his best basketball in the playoffs. And I think that's kind of what's fresh in the mind, you know, when, when you're either preparing for drafts or when you're doing projections. Um, and he's just a fun player. Like he's somebody that everybody wants to play well and everybody wants to see him put up these huge numbers. But that said, the free throw percentage is a major concern. And I, I think it really came to the forefront in that playoff series when I, I forget he had like one disastrous game where it just looked like he forgot how to shoot free throws. Yeah. And, you know, he, he was never a great free throw shooter, but it was one of those things that, you know, first year or two, you're like, okay, that's fine. You know, he's came from Europe. He's, he's adjusting to a new ball. It's a different game, whatever. Eventually it'll come around. And it really hasn't. I mean, he went from 71% as a rookie, 76% two years ago, and then back down to 73% last season. And for a guy who's taking, you know, somewhere between probably seven and nine free throws per game this season, you know, even though it's not a disastrous, like Andre Drummond, 43% type of number, it's 73% is not great for a guy taking that many. No, you mentioned his, his free throw shooting in the playoffs. He was 53% um, on like seven attempts a game in the, in the playoff series against the Clippers. Yeah. If you're in a points league, I think Doncic is, you can have an argument to take him number one in a points league, you know, cause he's among those guys averaging like 55 plus fantasy points, but you're right. The, the, the free throw percentage is absolutely killer. Um, he's managed to improve his general field goal and three point percentage, which is good. Um, you know, his three point percentage, like, uh, in 2019, 20 was only 32%, which I think is shocking to like a lot of people who 
sort of casually follow like basketball and the Mavericks and like no Luca's doing a ton of step backs and they just assume he's like Harden esque with the rate that he makes them and he just hasn't been. But you know, I mean, just one of the players, one of the biggest sort of meteoric rises in NBA history um, from a rookie, like truly a prodigy. Um, and so like you assume if anyone can, you know, kind of clean up their efficiency at some point, like their fourth year, it would be Doncic, right? So I think, again, I think if you're drafting really aggressively and you want to draft him like fourth or fifth, I don't think that's crazy at all. Like if you just want to assume he's going to get better from the free throw line and from three and all of that. And it's also a guy we know is going to work at this. I, I think it's it's not somebody who's just like, well, I'm just not good at free throws, guys. Sorry. Like, he, there's, he's going to find a way at some point. And un, unlike a player like Giannis, there, there's not this, like, physical element to it. Where with, with Giannis, it's like the way his body is constructed, he, he just there's maybe nothing he can do. He, he might tap out or max out at, like, 75% from the line. But, I mean, nothing about the rest of Doncic's game or shooting motion or hand size or anything – implies that he should be a bad free throw shooter. So right. I, I think there's there's reason to have confidence in a player like him figuring it out. Yeah, I mean, he's an extremely smooth player. Like, his his right. shot is just smooth. Giannis is a clunky player. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like we would be... Uh, I, we have to talk about the Lakers, right? Um, yeah. How, how difficult did you feel like the Lakers were to project? Not Like, not just the big three, which I think is its own issue, but they added like five or six guys who have all been like legitimate rotation players for other teams. They like their roster is incredibly deep. Yeah, it really is. And we've harped on that a couple of times, you know, on different pods. Like I, I hated the Russell Westbrook edition. Um, I, I think there's, there are arguments you can make, you know, that, that it maybe improves this team during the regular season. I think they're going to have extreme trouble um, you know, finding ways to get value out of him in the playoffs. But I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get there. I, I do like pretty much everything else they did around him. No, I mean, to fill out this roster, um, retaining Taylor Horton Tucker over Alex Caruso, I thought that was the complete correct move. Um, if you had to choose one or the other, I, I think that one's going to pay dividends long term. Um, I mean, it, it's hard to get really fired up about like the Kent Bazemores and Trevor Ariza's and Carmelo Anthony's of the world. But I actually, I felt like they finally targeted the right types of players to put around LeBron and Anthony Davis. Whereas last year it was all these kind of like head down, you know, in theory, you know, they could score Kyle Kuzma, you know, Marky Morris type of guys um, or these defensive focused players like Alex Caruso. And they just, they really struggled to score, you know, shockingly when LeBron James was off the court, the offense completely cratered and Anthony Davis stopped hitting all the, the really difficult threes and mid range twos that he hit two years ago. And, you know, they kind of went the other way. You know, you get a, a, a really good playmaker in Kendrick Nunn at a huge discount. Um, I mean, at least Melo can spot up and hit threes. Same with Wayne Ellington. Same with Malik Monk. I think Dwight Howard is actually going to be a really good fit. He was obviously a, a, a fine fit for them two years ago. So I, I think the roster overall is, is in fairly good shape if they could figure out the Westbrook piece. I, I didn't have that much trouble, I would say, projecting the role players. Um, you know, this team is so top-heavy that sure. you know, we're, we're a lot more concerned with those top three guys just because a lot of the role players, you know, for the most part, just aren't really going to be fantasy relevant in, in most standard leagues. But I, I think projecting Westbrook specifically was the most difficult task because, you know, we, we have so many different, you know, samples, I guess, of Westbrook in different situations. But yet again, for the fourth year in a row, he's with a fourth different team. And 
it's a completely different situation. Like, yes, we've seen him play with other stars in OKC. Yes, we saw him play with James Harden in Houston. We saw him play with Bradley Beal in Washington. But nothing really compares with playing with LeBron James. And then you throw the Anthony Davis element in there as well. It, it's just really difficult. And, you know, he's averaged a triple-double, what, like four or five times now in his career. I, I couldn't quite get there because I, I do think if there's one guy who, uh, you know, he is willing to defer to, it's going to be LeBron, right? And, and I also don't think LeBron is going to be willing to let Westbrook be Westbrook on the level that Brad Beal was willing to let that happen last year. So we, we came in on Westbrook at about 21 and a half points, 9.1 rebounds, seven and a half assists, 1.6 steals. Uh, percentages are, are about where they've been these last couple of years. Not great, obviously. But do, do you think that assist number is a little too high, a little too conservative? I think it's fine because, you know, my guess would be that you, you know, if you're Frank Vogel, you want LeBron and Westbrook, you want to stagger those minutes, kind of like they were doing in Houston with um, Harden and Westbrook. You know, you don't want those guys on the court. You want them on the court together as little as possible. You know, I, ideally, like they're going to start the game and the starting lineup together and maybe they'll, they're going to finish the game on the court together. Um, other than that, you want to try and limit it. So I think I think seven and a half is fine because Westbrook could just completely dominate the the touches for the second unit. You know, as much as they do have other uh, options like um, you know Kendrick Nunn and and Malik Monk, um, I still I still think that's going to be Westbrook's kind of uh, job ultimately. And you know he'll get plenty of like you know when's the last time? I mean Westbrook hasn't really had a a lob target like Anthony Davis before, has he? I mean. Capella was gone when Westbrook I mean, was there. Had, I can't remember. He had Alex Len last year. <laughs> um, yeah, Daniel Gafford. I uh, so I, I think that's going to factor in too because that's going to be a really tough pick and roll to guard. Now I know you can like go under it, right? Because Westbrook can't shoot the basketball. But um, I, I think you're fine with the you know with the assist there. It is, I you know, no one knows what's going to happen. Like like you mentioned. Um, you know, how much are these guys willing to defer to each other? Um, is Anthony Davis ever going to actually touch the ball when it's not just like a, a lob dunk? Um, you know, like is his, is his mid range touches and his post-ups just gone? What happens to his rebounds too with Westbrook there? Um, it's all really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Davis is actually the biggest swing player for LA this year. I mean, even if LeBron maybe continues to take like these very slight steps back each year, He's still very much good enough to be the best player on a title team. I have no doubt about that. Um, and even with Westbrook, it's like you kind of know what you're getting, even though it's a it's a crazy variance from game to game. I mean, you you know at least the, like the style that you're going to get from Westbrook, and you know the tenacity that's going to come with that. And you know you might get three of twenty one game, but you might get four or you know fourteen of twenty the next game. So I, I think for as much variance as there is with Westbrook, like it's he's not the guy that is ultimately going to prevent them from from winning or not winning the title. I think it's Davis. I, I think if Davis comes comes out and plays like he did last year in 36 games and looks like basically a shell of the player who was dominating the NBA finals a few months earlier, then the Lakers are not going to make it out of the West and they're not going to beat the Nets in the finals. But if we get the Anthony Davis from two years ago, who's averaging 26 a game, 10 rebounds, you know, three and a half assists, two and a half blocks, you know, make it a case to be the best two-way player in the NBA, then absolutely they're the team to beat in the West, if not the league. But I, I, I don't, I don't know what to do with Davis. You know, like we, we have multiple years now of him dominating the league and we have a couple of years of him, you know, being injured and just kind of floating in and out of games. 
I, I do think there's a good chance that he's able to bounce back. But like you said, statistically, that bounce back maybe doesn't look quite as like outsized as it normally would because of the integration of Russell Westbrook. Like I, I think Davis could play a lot more effectively, a lot more efficiently, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to come out an average 28 and 12. Like I, we have him projected for his fewest rebounds per game of his entire career. And a big part of that is you're bringing in, you know, one of the elite rebounders at any position in the league in Westbrook. Like we have, we have Westbrook as easily the Lakers leading rebounder this year. Yeah. And LeBron's going to get his boards and, you know, like Dwight Howard's going to come in there and give his rebounds and everything like right. that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Davis is interesting. I, cause he is one of the most, uh, in terms of like guys who you could classify as superstars, he floats maybe more than any other player just in terms of like, he's completely okay. Just like, again, this, it kind of stems from his idea of not wanting to play center. Right. He's just like, he doesn't want to deal with the, the physicality that's involved with that. He kind of wants to, wants to hang out around like the mid, like the mid post and shoot jumpers and like kind of run the break. Um, and I agree with you that like, this could actually be like, it's possible he averages, you know, his fewest, maybe his fewest points per game and his fewest rebounds in a while, but maybe he has the most efficient year of his career just in terms of pure field goal percentage because right. he could be just getting the easiest looks ever. He's going to continue to get lobs from from uh, Westbrook and, and LeBron, and he's not really going to shoot, you know, those kind of, like, bad mid-range jumpers. Um, <laughs> Westbrook's going to eat the bad mid-range jumpers that the Lakers offense uh, would normally send Davis's way. So he do, he, I think he is going to have a really fascinating season. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he averages like, you know, 22, 23 points a game again, but Hey, maybe it's on 55% shooting instead of 49% shooting. It does always seem like Davis needs like a kick in the pants to get going. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it felt like playing with LeBron in year one was that kick and like LeBron, like forced him to be good. And, and then winning the title kind of took the pressure off. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. Davis was like openly coasting essentially. And they, and it, I mean, I, I think he kind of follows LeBron's lead in, in some ways, but LeBron can flip that switch better than anybody. And I think Davis like really wants to be able to flip the switch, but nobody can do it like LeBron. Um, but I, I think, you know, having a, a fairly poor season by his standards last year, missing a bunch of time, you know, the Lakers flaming out in, in round one with Davis hurt. Like if, if there's any motivation factor, you know, you can kind of it's kind of at your own discretion how much you factor that in when it comes to fantasy. I would guess that that's back this year. I, I can't imagine him floating as much as he was uh, last season. We have Zion Williamson at 20th overall, 29 points per game, 7.8 rebounds, 4.4 assists, uh, 1.0 steal, and 0.8 blocks, uh, just under 60% from the field, just over 70%. You got about 70.9 from the free throw line. I, I felt pretty good about, about these projections. Um, you know, I, I kind of have to shop around a little bit and, and maybe see what some other people have for Zion and, and we'll continue to tweak these, you know, as the, as the season approaches, but it, it wouldn't shock me if he, if he went over 30 points per game, just because of the way that the Pelicans are now constructed. Uh, but in general, like we, we tend not to try to go, you know, what happens in best case scenario when it comes to projections, we're, we're kind of looking for maybe the midpoint, if not, maybe leaning a little bit more conservative. Yeah. Zion is, is, um, He's really tough to project, I think, just because I, he's one of the most unique players that's going to be in history, right? Like, it's, um, I don't think projecting him near 30 points a game is crazy. Obviously, he averaged 27 a game last year in only 33 minutes. I mean, if, if Zion starts playing 35 to 36 minutes a game, um, which, again, just his minutes in general are hard to project because he's dealt with the injuries. Um, like, they were trying to, they got in guys uh, like Trangers to reteach him how to walk and run properly. So there's like less strain. 
So it's kind of hard to know exactly what's even going to go on there. But yeah, I mean, he, late later in the season, like I think kind of February onward, um, they were a lot more comfortable just handing him the ball and like having him run pick and roll and start ISO from the, t- you know, from the perimeter that his assists went up, his free throw percentage also went up. He started to hit threes a, a little more confidently. Um, so like, I, I think if you just kind of take the, you know, the numbers that you projected him for and that we haven't projected for are really not that different from what he was doing for the last half of the season. So I think just, you know, you, you just take that and you're assuming some improvement and that's, that's how you get to where his projection numbers are. And that's how he gets to uh 20th, which I think is a completely fine place to draft him. Yeah. And, and this is factored into with, you know, less talent, I, I think around him, you know, that we've, we've spoken at length about how we feel uh, about this Pelicans off season. And I, I do think like there is a case to be made that maybe not having Lonzo there who, you know, he clearly had chemistry with and, and Lonzo fed him a lot of easy baskets. I, I think that, you know, maybe that's an area where where you kind of worry about Zion. But as you alluded to, especially in that second half of the year, pretty much everything he was doing was self-created. You know, they they, they let him you know kind of be the man in the half court. And I, I just think he's so talented and so big and so explosive that even though, it, yeah, it's nice to have somebody who could throw you accurate lobs and, and maybe give you somewhere between four and six points per game off of those, Zion doesn't really need that. You know, if if if, if not having Eric Bledsoe and not having Lonzo Ball there means that Zion maybe inherits a few more possessions per game where he can just go one-on-one and bully guys to the rim and either finish with a layup or get fouled. I, I think those kind of cancel out, if, if not come out in favor of Zion. Yeah, I think the the strongest uh, indicator of that, and this is from Clean the Glass, which is a great site um, to find like it's it sort of advanced stats for, but as a rookie, Zion, uh, 76% of his baskets came off of assists. Last year it was 56. So 20, he was doing 20% more shot creation for himself last year than as a rookie. And I think there's a good chance that continues like Devonte Graham. I mean, he's worse than Lonzo ball, but they're very different players, right? I think Devonte Graham is actually probably a more dynamic, like pick and roll partner potentially for Zion. I could maybe set Zion up even better um, in the half court, at least um, than Lonzo was able to. Um, so it's kind of like tough to say exactly, but like we, we, everyone knows that the organization is doing everything they absolutely can to just cater to Zion and what he wants because they're so terrified that he's going to leave. I will say Devontae Graham is going to create more offensive rebounding opportunities for Zion. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a huge plus. I mean, Zion's, uh, yeah. Zion's offensive rebounding rate dropped from his rookie season to last year. It was at 10.1 as a rookie, 8.9 last season. And I mean, I, I think it's it's one of those things where you're like, how is this guy not getting 10 offensive rebounds per game? Um, obviously, that's unrealistic, but he definitely has room to grow in that area if he wants to or if the Pelicans want to position him there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they still they didn't do what we all wanted them to do and get like a real stretch five. Right. To like really clear out the lane for Zion. But uh, Young's Valanciunas is a much better offensive player and a lot more dynamic offensive player than Stephen Adams. Right. Like you don't really want Valanciunas out there shooting from three, but teams at least are going to like kind of like they're going to know he's standing in the corner or at the top of the key and he can at least like hit like a like 16, 17 footer and kind of stand out there for Zion, even if it's not like, quote unquote, the most efficient thing in the world. Um, so I think I think having Valanciunas there instead of Adams is an upgrade, even if it's not or from like an encore fit perspective, even if it's not the upgrade that kind of like we all want. 
Right, and I wouldn't be surprised if Alan Shunis significantly increases his volume just as a byproduct of the coaching staff essentially forcing him or positioning him to do so. Like, I, I think this could be a Sabonis type of situation where he goes from, you know, Sabonis took how many threes? He, he, was, he took 17 threes in 2018-19, took 67 two seasons ago, exact same number of games, took 162 last year. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if you want Valanciunas necessarily taking almost three per game, but if the whole point of bringing him in is to create space for Zion Williamson, I, I almost think you're willing to live with him being a relatively inefficient three-point shooter. Like, let's say he's shooting like 33, 34%. Like, that's not great. But if it's enough that the defense has to at least start worrying about it, then I almost feel like the overall mission of creating more space for Zion ends up being accomplished. Yeah, and I mean, Valanciunas over the past four seasons is a 36% three-point shooter. It's on 270 attempts, which is like actually mm -hmm. decent volume. So um, I think that could work out. Yeah, I think we could see Valanciunas right. take like two, three threes a game, something like that. Yeah, I mean, you have to keep in mind that for the last four years, like every single one of those looks has been wide open. And at some point, maybe that changes. But yeah, I mean, if he's giving you anything above like 32%, I, I think you could live with that from a, a seven-footer who's certainly not like characterized as that type of player. Is there anyone in the like 20 to 40-ish range or, or multiple players in that range who you want to talk about? Um, I was actually going to ask you if there were any teams or players that like you really struggled with or anything like that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we could we could go that way, too. I mean, in terms of the actual projection, I didn't I didn't struggle. But every year with Kyrie Irving, I, oh, you sorry. never really know what to do just because the the games played. I was I was going to say injuries, but it's not even injuries at this point. It's whatever's keeping him out of games has become such a big part of the narrative with him. Um, I mean, he was he was easily a top ten guy in fantasy on a per game basis last year, but I, mean, I think we have him at like thirtieth overall uh, in total value, and I, I mean I feel pretty good about that despite the fact that he's a much better player than all the guys in his range here. I mean, for a guy who missed 18 games last year, missed like 50 plus games the year before, uh, missed 15 games the year before that, 22 the year before that, uh, like, like, hit, like a godsend year from Kyrie Irving would be him missing like 13 games. And then that's still <laughs> more than you'd like. Like, I mean, we haven't projected that 61. Maybe that ends up being too low. Hopefully that ends up being too low. But I, I mean, that's basically kind of like where, right where he sat for most of the last decade. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's a top. He's a first round talent when he's healthy. He's never healthy. That's kind of just what it comes down to. Like if you want to draft him in the second round and kind of shoot the gap between like, uh, you know, what we'll get probably like the 60 games that we haven't projected for and like the hopeful 75 games that he would play on the high end. Um, that's completely understandable. Um, he's a guy that just like, I, I feel like I have drafted him. I definitely drafted him one year. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was in an auction draft and I felt like I was getting him at a huge discount. In general, I would not draft Kyrie Irving unless um, I felt like I was getting him at a discount. And I think third round is like an appropriate spot to draft him. Like to me, that feels like where I would take him, given the risk. Um, I do have three guys kind of in that range. You can either, I guess, pick them all um, or one of them who I thought are interesting kind of in this like 30, 40 ish range. And that's DeJounte Murray, Jaron Jackson, and Tyrese Halliburton. Um, are all I like them all are all top 45 in our rankings right now let's start with Murray 
I, I think he's the guy that you and I in particular have gone back and forth on the most. And, and this ties into what we were saying about the Spurs at the top of the podcast. Like everything is positioned for him to be the guy. I, I guess my question is like how, how well positioned is he as a player to accept and thrive in that type of role? You know, like he, he, I don't think he has the capability to ever be someone who you're feeding for like 25 plus points per game. Like that's just not really who he is. He's not like a true number one option. But for this team, I, I think that would be the ideal scenario is he approaches 20 points per game for the first time in his career. Uh, we, we went a little bit below that. We have met 19.1 points per game, uh, 7.8 rebounds. Obviously, he's one of the best guard rebounders in the league, probably number two in that category behind Russell Westbrook. Seven assists uh, and then 1.8 steals. Um, perennially a guy who's, who's kind of at the top of the charts in terms of racking up steals. And, and that's the category that ultimately you know, propels him into the top 35 in these rankings, I, I think there's a chance that, you know, maybe we look dumb and, and Murray doesn't quite take that step forward, or maybe they, you know, distribute things uh, among all those young players that we mentioned. And he's not really a true number one. I think that's very much on the table. Um, but I think there's also a chance that maybe he looks even better than we thought. And, you know, for a guy who had the torn ACL and his development has just kind of been, I wouldn't say stunted, but like, you know, San Antonio is just a weird place for young players to develop you know, LaMarcus Aldridge is there for a while. They, they bring in DeMar DeRozan. Like, he's never really had a chance to have his own team. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what direction San Antonio goes. But my hope is that he has a really long leash. And, you know, finally, he's he's able to start playing like 33, 34, 35 minutes per game. If that's the case, then I think the numbers that we have him at are pretty realistic. I think so, too. He was pretty up and down last year. That's partially because he's not really an efficient shooter, um, relies a lot on like long mid rangers. His three point percentage isn't great, but he has a decent free throw percentage. But I agree with you overall. Like the Spurs team is so bad. Um, and if any, again, if anybody else on this team gets hurt, like if if especially Derek White, because who other than Derek White and Dejounte Murray is like creating shots for other people or even for themselves on this team? I guess Keldon Johnson to some extent, but he's not really a guy you want like at the top of the key, like trying to make things happen with a pick and roll. Lonnie Walker is not really that guy either. So, I mean, DeJounte Murray, there could be some games where he's, you know, 35% usage. Like, um, I think he's absolutely, it's hard to think of another player. I mean, I'm sure it's happened, but just off the top of my head, like that's in this sort of position where it's like, everything is completely built for them to have an insane season. Like they're at the exact right point in their career. Their stat lines have been like, progressively increasing. They're well-rounded. I guess Shea Gilgis Alexander comes to mind. Um, kind of immediately. Yeah. I mean, even like Christian Wood last year to some degree. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, SGA is in a very similar position. Right. And Murray, you know, like Murray's already such an established defender in the NBA, like someone who could easily um, maybe not lead the NBA and combine steals and blocks, but for guards, maybe. Um, and sure. yeah. a good rebounder. And it's just like the thing, the thing for Murray at this point is like, can he just become an efficient shooter? Because if he can become like a 36 to 38% three-point shooter, maybe improve his passing a little bit, like, again, he could be in line for like an amazing season, like maybe even second round value. Because um, I don't even, again, I don't even think, you know, if if we took like everyone, you know, every company that does fantasy uh, projections, I doubt we'd be the highest people on DeJounte Murray. Maybe we're on the high end, but I don't think, you know, I, I think there's potential and I think there'll be people who draft him higher than 34. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I think I think it could be kind of like Morant last year, 
where I mean, I, I, Morant went for like an insane amount in our staff auction. I don't remember. I know I remember it was Chris Benzine who got him, um, and that looked great through the the first two games where he was like the best player in the league, and then yeah. had that ankle injury and was never quite the same. But yeah, if you're, if you're talking about guys who are I think like true, true breakout candidates. I, I think, I think Jonte Murray is probably at the head of that list this season. And yeah, you're going to see guys, you know, really try to be aggressive and, and make sure, you know, it's what, if, if you're, if you're picking at like 35 and you're like, ah, you know, I, I really hope he falls to me, but I don't know. Like, I think you're going to see people just like take him around early because there is going to be a, a considerable amount of fantasy hype around him. We have Jaron Jackson at 40th overall. I, I don't know what to think about Jaron Jackson anymore. Like my last memory of him is I, I think it was one of the play-in games. He was just like launching threes left and right. Yeah. Every every single time he touched the ball, a three-pointer was going up. It was oh no, it was in the playoffs against Utah. He was three of ten uh, from beyond the arc in in game four of that series, uh, which Memphis did not win. You know the the narrative around Jaron Jackson, I guess obviously health issues aside, that's been the primary narrative, but he just has such a weird stat profile. You know, he's this like six eleven, super athletic big man who can block shots at a high rate. And yet he's averaged under five rebounds per game in two of his three seasons. And even last year when he finally started improving in that uh, only played 11 games. So it wasn't a big sample, but even then he was only at 5.6 per game granted in 23.5 minutes per game. Um, but I, I, I just don't feel like we have a legitimate sample as to what we can expect from Jaron Jackson, you know, the, the soon to be 22 year old, because, you know, his rookie year was, was now coming up on what, three, four years ago. Uh, last year was essentially a lost season. Um, he's just a really, really difficult player to project. I, I think he's someone who like his name value, I think exceeds how good he's been so far. And I'm still in on him. I, I still think he can be good long-term, but I, I, I think he was maybe anointed like a little too early as like this, no doubter future superstar. Yeah, his stat profile, um, like his his where he takes his shots from, is a little it's a, dangerously close to Chris Stapp's Porzingis. And, and Chris Stapp's Porzingis is an amazing fantasy player when he's healthy. So that's yeah, not well, like look, compl- look who's right ahead of him in our rankings, Porzingis. <laughs> they play very similarly, just in terms of like launching a ton of threes, um, and being like a shot blocker. Like the kind of this is, he's the exact prototypical model of like a stretch five that block shots. He's in the mold of Porzingis of miles Turner guys like that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think, you know, the Grizzlies are, you know, considering their off season moves are still in that, like, they're not really concerned with getting too good too fast or, or like, I guess they don't want to be is is what I'm trying to say. And so I think, I think they'll continue to feed Jackson. Um, Although, I mean, if you pass, Jackson the ball he's gonna shoot it um so I don't know like I, I always thought he'd be more interesting just in terms of like being able to do more in the post um uh, maybe a little jump hook stuff like that um although I felt the same way about Miles Turner it just seems like these guys always end up they just keep getting fed more and more threes instead of kind of diversifying their offense um but he, he's, he's again he's tough because he's been injured a lot um He's a unique stat profile, but I think again, if you draft him in the fourth round, <laughs> you're not doing anything wrong. Like, it, it, just considering his age, the team he's on, uh, the numbers he puts up. Again, the rebounding is bad, and that's not going to get any better with Stephen Adams being there. But he's going to put up numbers. Let's go to Halliburton. We have him at 46 overall. I, I really, really liked 
uh, what, what we saw from him as a rookie last year. I was super high on him uh, coming into the year. And, and you know, Sacramento ended up being a really good landing spot for Tyrese Halliburton. I, I think there's a chance that he makes a, a pretty big leap next year. Um, although it, it is Sacramento, he's still second fiddle at best to De'Aaron Fox. And, you know, Buddy Heald's still on that roster. They take another guard in Davion Mitchell in the draft. And, and he's going to have to play, you know, at, at least 20, 25 minutes a game. And, and I, don't, I don't think that necessarily takes away from Halliburton. But I think there's a chance that it maybe lowers Halliburton's ceiling a little bit. Just the fact that you're throwing another, you know, fairly high upside guard, uh, another lottery pick into this mix. We have him at 16.4 points, 4.3 rebounds, 5.8 assists, 1.5 steals. Uh, 47% from the field, two and a half threes per game. So uh, a nice little jump, but but nothing too crazy. I mean, I I wouldn't be shocked if he puts up better numbers than this. But at the same time, I, I feel like for something for something like that to happen, like for Halliburton to average 19, seven and seven, that probably means De'Aaron Fox like tweaked his hamstring and missed 30 games. Yeah, I mean they still have. As far as bad as they are, they kind of still have, like, mouths to feed, right? Like, you mentioned Fox obviously controls the offense, but Buddy Heald, like, again, he's just going to launch a ton of threes. Harrison Barnes kind of took on more of, like, a, um, like, even more of a playmaking role last year. Had, like, a great resurgence, but just kind of, like, bizarre. Um, Bagley's going to be looking for touches, I guess. Um, And you mentioned Mitchell. So, I think you're relatively conservative in your projection. And the thing is, like, Halliburton's so efficient, and his stats um, translate so well to fantasy that even with a relatively conservative um, projection in terms of his improvement, like he's still at 46. So um, yeah. And and if you're someone who, I guess, you know, I mean, maybe Buggy Heel gets traded and all that. Um, I don't know. I, I, th- I think 46 is a good spot for him. I, I might be a little surprised if he gets drafted that high, just because I think people are kind of aware of the situation and he doesn't put up like gaudy numbers. Like his right. stat profile is just so much uh, based on efficiency. Um, but again, I think that's, I, th- I think those numbers make a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't get to one and a half steals. He was at 1.3 last year. I mean, we do have him projected for almost three more minutes per game. Um, so that, that should help. Uh, but, but yeah, like you said, I mean, with, with Halliburton, it's almost more of a math equation than anything else where, you know, you see like John Morant is ranked 10 spots lower John Morant's a better player. John Morant's the guy you would want. But for fantasy, Halliburton, like, you know, the, the algorithms just favor Tyrese Halliburton over a player like John Morant, who doesn't really give you anything on defense, doesn't take a lot of threes, you know, only shoots 72% at the free throw line last year. Um, what, what did you think about Morant coming in in the mid-50s? Uh, I think that makes sense. I mean, because he, he was, a, I mean, he was a huge disappointment for a lot of people last season. Um I can't remember. He must have been being drafted in like, do you remember when he was being drafted? It had to be. I mean, it had to be before pick 70 because he ranked 74th as a rookie. I, I, I will look that up as you're talking. He must have been going in like the fourth round last year. Um, But he ended up ranking 114 last year uh, in per game value. So he it was a pretty significant drop for him. And again, like you mentioned, it's just that as great as he is, and we saw him be amazing in the, I mean, his, his playoff performances were insane. Um, his numbers just don't trans- translate to fantasy. Um, the lack of defensive numbers, the lack of threes, his bad free throw percentage. He's an amazing talent, but it's just, again, it's just part of the, like, the equation of what makes a good fantasy player. And for as talented as he is, his numbers just don't translate like that. And again, there, yeah, there's a chance. Like I think you act, you know, you're accurate. Like 
his points per game should go up or maybe his assists go up and he should get a little more efficient. Like he shot pretty well from three in the playoffs, which was very encouraging. So maybe that happens um, and leads to a, a better efficiency bump. Um, but he's, he's a tough player to project. But in the end, I, I have a hard time believing people are going to let him slip past the fifth round. I just think, again, he, people see the name and they know the talent. They're like, I, I, I could never let this guy slip past my pick at five. He's somebody that definitely gets overdrafted based on name, for sure, for sure, especially if you're playing in, in more casual leagues. I mean, his ADP last year was 25, and that was justifiable at the time. I mean, there was enough hype around yeah. him after that rookie season that I, I think a lot of people thought he would take a bigger step forward. And again, maybe he would have had it not been for that ankle injury. I, I know he didn't miss that much time. I think he only missed like 10 or 15 games. But it just felt like he wasn't quite the same guy after that or didn't quite have the same confidence. But I, I think he has to shoot more threes. And, and if we're saying it, he knows it. That coaching staff knows it. Um, you know, we, we did see a glimpse of it, like you said, in the playoffs. And, and that is reflected in his projection. We have him at like one, a half a three-pointer per game more than last year. He's at 1.7 makes per game, uh, which ultimately could be conservative because he had some games that he had like multiple double-digit three-point attempt games at the end of the year, which for a guy who had a lot of games in the middle of the year where he's taking like two or three three-pointers, that was a huge step forward. And and I'm pretty confident in Moran eventually figuring it out from three. Like the jumper looks good. Um, it, it just does kind of seem like it's a play style slash confidence issue with him. Yeah, from that last regular season game against the Warriors on, he shot six and a half threes a game and made them at 35%, which for Morant would be great. Like, and is great. Like if you could do that next year, the problem is, is, free throw percentage was still 72%, which is what it was during the regular season. And that's lower than his 78% mark as a rookie. So that ultimately like kind of, that has to factor into the concern as well. Um, Cause that's, I think that's the thing, you know, if you're somewhat new to playing category fantasy leagues uh, and you're not really paying attention to someone's free throw percentage, when they're a high volume free throw guy, you're going to end up with a potentially terrible team and you're not going to like know why. Um, like if, if you're drafting, you know, like I guess you could punt it theoretically and it, it would kind of stop maggering after a certain point. But if you get like Giannis in the first and then you draft Zion and then you, you go from a rant like in the fourth round. <laughs> why just, is this happening? Why is my team so bad? Why, I don't why am I? Yeah. Why am I in last place? Well, um, <laughs> uh, that that can certainly happen to people. Yeah, fair enough. All right, man. We're, we're almost at an hour here. Um, maybe we've crossed that threshold already. We'll see. But I, I want to finish out with some rookie discussion. Uh, and then we'll we'll wrap this thing up. We only have two rookies projected inside the top 100, and that is kind of by design. I, I I tend to be really conservative with rookies. There's a pretty good chance that more than two will end up, uh, you know, in the final. You know, when you're talking total value rankings inside that top 100, but you know, you have to kind of make some leaps to to really throw guys in there. Cunningham came in at 62, and Evan Mobley came in at 81. Uh, with Cade, we went 16.9 points, 5.9 rebounds, 5.2 assists, 1.1 steals, and a half a block, two threes per game, uh, and, and about 43, 43.9% from the field, 85% at the line. Um, I, I, I think, you know, if he hits all those benchmarks, that would be a really, really good rookie season. That would probably be a rookie of the year rookie season. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really not quite sure what I'm expecting. Like, I, I don't know if I expect him to go over or under those. You know, like summer league was kind of a mixed bag with him. I, I thought he looked more comfortable in his second uh, or his second and third game, I should say, than the first game. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, he has enough talent around him where 
it's not just a situation where you're you're throwing this guy to the wolves and saying like all right go go take 20 shots a game we don't care what happens like detroit's not going to make the playoffs but they are going to be a competent enough team with a competent enough coach in Dwayne casey that it, it it does worry me a little bit that um like i, I feel like it, it's good for like his development as a player but I, I i think there might be enough pieces around him that we don't get like an ideal fantasy season from him yeah, summer league stats are always tough because it's kind of a format that just favors gunners, and Cunningham isn't really like that like hyper athletic gunner, right? He's kind of almost more of like a floor general type, um, with obviously like a tongue of upside to still score. But I think I think you know like once he gets in a system, and he, he he's a guy who can like run a system perfectly. So you know like I'm not like projecting rookies is tough, and I think in any year that you know, people are relatively high on a, a a particular rookie, especially when they go number one. <clears throat> it feels like those guys always get taken in like the sixth round, like Lamelo Ball last year. People get past the fifth round, they're like, eh, you know what? <laughs> like, I like the guy. I'll take him six. Like, uh, like who knows? So, I have to find spot. I was a little surprised by Mobley, honestly. Like, I, I felt like I was more surprised when I saw his name at eighty one. Um. I don't mean that in a bad way because I again then I just looked at his projections and I thought they were like relatively conservative and he just seems like one of those guys who his numbers are just going to translate really well to fantasy because um, he can he can pass a little bit he's a good shot blocker he's gonna you know maybe hit some threes um, part of the part of the problem in Cleveland is like what's going to happen with Kevin Love are they going to continue to give minutes to Larry Nance that sort of a thing. Um, but I, I thought that was almost more interesting than Cunningham's rank, honestly. Yeah, we went we went conservative on Mobley as well. Um, I, I just, you know, I, I like him a lot as a prospect. I think long term he's going to be good. Um, but I, I also don't know that he's the type of player that is just going to come in and like dominate from day one. You know, I almost think it could be, and it seems it seems kind of crazy now, like how good he's become. But like Anthony Davis was like pretty disappointing as a rookie. You know, his, I think a lot of people thought he would be like more dominant right away coming off of that run with Kentucky. And if you look at the numbers, like they are nothing special whatsoever. And I mean, he didn't even win rookie of the year. He was the heavy, heavy favorite to win that award. Um, and obviously, you know, by year two, year three, it became clear he was going to be really good. But I, I, I feel like that's kind of how this season might go with Mobley, especially when, you know, he had they have other options, not only in the front court, but you have two high usage, you know, pretty good guards in the backcourt. You have last year's lottery pick on the wing. Um, you know, like much like Cunningham, but I think to an even stronger degree with Mobley, like the, the Cavs aren't exactly playing out this season just to boost Evan Mobley's stats. You know, there, there are other yeah. mouths to feed. Uh, and that worries me a little bit. Uh, in order, we have Jalen Green, who comes in at 118, or excuse me, Jalen Suggs comes in at 118. Uh, and then Jalen Green all the way down at 147. I mean, we, we have Jalen Green as the leading scorer among rookies. He's at 18.3 points per game. Uh, not super efficient, 42.8. Uh, which, as, as most rookie guards go, you know that's that's kind of run of the mill. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised though at the end of the year if Suggs does finish ahead of Green, even if Green has the more impressive season and some of the more impressive moments. Um, I, I think Suggs is kind of this year's Halliburton in that his game translates much better to fantasy than Jalen Green's game does. Yeah, Suggs is in an interesting spot, um, partially because the Magic just like have a ton of other guards that they're kind of working on, right? Like. Markel Fultz is still around, which I thought, first of all, I thought the deal that they gave Markel Fultz was insane. Like, I, I almost feel the need to rehash the fact that they, like, extended Markel Fultz. Like, why? I, I do not understand why you're doing that. Um, they drafted Cole Anthony last year, who had some good moments. They they 
basically got RJ Hampton for free, um, who looked pretty decent for them. Like, I'm sure the focus will still be on Suggs, but they kind of have some other stuff going on that makes his situation a little confusing. Even Jalen Green, too, because we talked about how, you know, how many miles there are to feed on the on the Rockets. Um, so his their situations are a little more um, fluid, I guess, just in terms of like how much usage they can end up getting compared to someone like Cunningham. Was it Ricky Davis or Darius Miles? Who uh, I think it was Ricky Davis who said like when the Cavs drafted LeBron, he was like, "All right, nice, they got me some help." Like that's how I feel like Kevin Porter views <laughs> Jalen Green. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, probably. Are there any uh, Are there any rookies kind of outside? Uh, like, who do you? Is there a dark horse rookie you feel like could be worth drafting with like a final pick? you know, in your fantasy league or maybe even like a deeper league, um, someone who might just end up getting a lot of minutes by default. Like you thinking like, uh, I don't know, book nights, probably not, but like Sangoon, maybe, is there anybody you're kind of thinking about, uh, with a flyer in deeper leagues? There's a ton of guys. Um, yeah, I, I think like, we'll see what like Franz Wagner looked much worse in summer league than I expected, but he's, he's somebody whose overall game should lend well to fantasy. Like he could, he could not play that well, but still be a better fantasy player than his actual game implies, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I mean, Davion Mitchell is in that category just from a minutes perspective. I think Chris Duarte could end up playing a lot of minutes for Indiana. I mean, Trey Murphy looked awesome for, for New Orleans in summer league. We'll see how much of a role he has. But no, I, I mean, if you're talking standard leagues, like Shangun is my answer 10 out of 10 times. Okay. I mean, he is, like, it, it's kind of going to be a, an Enos Cantor, young Sabonis type of situation where like other guys might need close to 30 minutes to be fantasy relevant. You know, just, it, it just becomes like a accumulation of stats type of situation. Whereas if Shingun can get like 22 minutes off the bench for a bad team that doesn't have a ton of depth and has, you know, a big man in Christian Wood, who is, is relatively injury prone and a guy in Daniel Tice, who I feel like could fall out of favor fairly easily. Um, like if like he could just be the Enos Cantor type, you know, it could, it could be, you know, we have him at like 10 points, six rebounds, um, like he, he doesn't block a ton of shots, but I mean, he could, he could approach one block per game. If the minutes are there, he's a decent passer, you know, not a guy who's going to give you like Hassan Whiteside assist numbers where it's like once every 15 games. Um, he's also not going to give you five assists per game, but he's, he's a good enough passer that he's not going to be a minus there. So I, I think Shingun is, is kind of the easy one. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a popular, you know, 11th, 12th round type of guy um, who, you know, probably isn't even a lineup consideration through the first couple of weeks. But, you know, if, if you're looking for like this year's like Jay Sean Tate, you know, for the same mm-hmm. team, it's probably him because the Rockets are on that short list of teams that you're going to target for random guys who, you know, like some of them might not even be on a roster right now. Like think about Moses Brown last year who had like that outstanding three week run for the Thunder. Um, the Thunders are going to have two or three more guys who are in that position this year. And, and the Rockets probably will as well. Yeah, Sangoon, I think he'll be really popular as that like last pick guy, partially because during the draft, um, they're continue they just continue to hammer home like when is this guy gonna get drafted? Like he's slipping, he's slipping. Um, kind of reminds me of like the Halliburton thing. Um, and he did look good in summer league. I mean, I the the thing when I watched him, I was most impressed by um you mentioned his passing. He's not like, you know, he's not like a visionary, but he makes the right passes and they're insanely crisp. Like they're so fast and they're right to guys shooting pockets. Um, and I was really impressed by like his ability to get in a defensive stance and like shuffle his feet. Um, and that will help him getting a lot of blocks. Um, and another guy, I think people will take a flyer on 
Um, people got to be looking at Josh Giddy, right? Just because he's in OKC and they've been so absolutely like they just give the ball to those guys, right? Like Pokashevsky, like go out and just be a point guard for 15 minutes. Um, that kind of a thing. Like, I think he's probably only a deeper league guy um, and not playing like you only play in that one summer league game before getting hurt. But I think people are at least going to like take a look just because the, the usage potential for Giddy. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of people just look at like where you were drafted. You know, if, if the top five picks are are all off the board by the time it's your last pick. You know, you might say like, all right, who went six? That, that's probably the sixth best guy. And you know, <laughs> like you said, the, the opportunity in OKC is certainly there. I, I, I think I'm kind of out on Giddy for this year. I, I, sure. I just need to see him play. Like we saw him play all of five minutes in Vegas. So we, we really just don't know what this is going to look like. I think it's more of a long-term investment for OKC. With that said, I mean, it's the number one place to go and get minutes. Like he's, he's going to get more minutes in OKC than he would on any other team in the league. So no, if, and if you, if you take him with, with anything but your last pick, I will fault you. I will not fault you if you take him with your last pick. Yeah, I think he's a guy, um, I'm trying to think of like, if you, um, like if you were talking like dynasty rankings, you know, for all these guys to get drafted, he might be up there, but I mean, Sangoon will definitely be up there too. He's, I, I think, I think Sangoon is probably the answer that we're both kind of like searching for here just as a guy, like to yeah. take with your last pick and a guy who you should be targeting highly in probably dynasty leagues as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Outside of the big names, I think he's, he's the guy you want. I mean, like Shangun versus even like Kaminga in a dynasty league is, right. is iffy just because we don't know when Kaminga is going to be unleashed for that team. You know, if Kaminga was in Houston and Shangun was in Golden State, it would be reversed. But, um, you know, the combination of opportunity and just a really fantasy friendly stat profile and overall game from Shangun uh, puts him in that category. But all right, man. Let's wrap it up. We'll, we'll talk more about rankings and projections as the season gets closer. We'll dive into more of those futures. Um, and and our, our preseason and, and pre-draft content is really going to start ramping up over these next couple of weeks. So make sure you're checking the site uh, to, to consume all of that. 